XXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXXX
and 30 handheld games. And they are Game Boy, Color Game Boy, Game Gear, and some mobile phones. So, yeah, Amazing. quite a lot. And that, sorry, all of that was just Blitz Games. I can do the <laughs> Oliver Twins list as well if you want. It's, yeah, it's quite yeah, a lot just, on that one. I think that just goes to show this is the start of a 76 series. Uh, of episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to cover all of them. I'm not sure if you were one beforehand, but we'll give it a go. <laughs> not really. I, I, I did have to resist the urge to say and a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> <laughs> So, so actually, I'm just I'm going to just load up the the Oliver Twins. Where's it gone? Oh, I've lost it. Oh man! Uh, I do know that on the our game section of the Oliver Twins website, there's around 54 individual titles on there. I don't know about the that list was made from this spreadsheet. So you're absolutely correct. Um, and I can't find my spreadsheet now, but you're absolutely correct. <laughs> and in fact, um, we were uh, given a Guinness World Records for the number of eight bit games that we made, um, which was very nice. Yeah, it's very good. Amazing, amazing. So I was wondering, um, uh, uh, Philip. This is, so there's there's a couple of things we we know that there is. So so Dizzy started out way back oh. when, and I, I hate to say way back when because I feel like that makes certain people feel old, and that's not the not the intent. But in that sort of eight bit period, Dizzy started then, and I do happen to know because it was the release of the new game. Which came just before Christmas 2020. That I was like, I, I've got to, I've got to get in touch with with the other <sighs> twins and talk to them because, like, a, a, a new game for the ZX Spectrum so in crazy. 2020. It's crazy, isn't it? It's, <laughs> and what, and what it people is... will do, hey. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> so, wonderful, dizzy. Uh, we're re- very proud of it. Um, do you want to know the background um, to it? Yeah, let's Please. talk a little bit about Please. that, if that's okay. <laughs> so, um, obviously, we created Dizzy back in the mid-80s, uh, very successful all the way through to early 90s. Um, but then we had a bit of a shared um, ownership issue with Codemasters. Uh, so it's always been a little bit tricky to sort of do anything completely new um, because we need their permission. And it's difficult for them to do anything without our permission. Um, and actually, they've gone all down the racing route anyway. Um, and within days, they will be EA. Um, but... Um, over the last few years, we um, managed to uh, rediscover some old Dizzy games that we'd written but were never published. Um, so we released those. That's Mystery World Dizzy, uh, there's Panic Dizzy, Dream World Pogi, and Wonderland Dizzy. Um, and, and those went out, and that was fine, and money went to charity. We didn't kind of take anything ourselves. And that was one of the, the reasons why Codemasters didn't have an issue with it. Um, but But we everybody's always asking for well can you do a new dizzy it's quite nice that you managed to find some old ones and we were quite pleased to actually be able to get release them after all those years um because uh, i have to say as creatives you want your work to be seen by people you don't make it to sort of stick it in the loft and nobody ever to see it um and it's, it's not just about the money it's actually kind of getting it out there in people's hands so it was quite nice to get all those out there um, but as for creating a, a new Dizzy game, um, it was always, we always had the problem that creating, everybody assumes that you'd want to do it for a modern console, a modern platform. The problem is it is so expensive to make software on modern platforms these days. Um, and we, oh, it must have been Easter 17, I think it was, where um, a group from East, 
um, Eastern Europe actually developed a new version of Crystal Kingdom Dizzy for Spectrum. And they just put it out on the internet and on, the, on Easter Day. And I saw a, a news article about this um, and it just came out of the blue. And I was like, oh, interesting. Um, but I've seen lots of kind of fan games before for Dizzy games. There's flipping hundreds of them, I'll tell you. Um, which I, had, I don't have a problem with. It's absolutely fine. I mean, good good luck to these people. I'm, I'm pleased they, they like Dizzy so much um, that they want to sort of do these um, fan games but this one was a little bit different in the, in the fact that it was an existing game but recoded and redone from scratch so i was like well that's a bit different why would somebody do that but let's take a look at it loaded it up and it was like whoa look at the quality it was incredible it was higher quality than the original and it's like well that's quite staggering but i did also think and i was talking to andrew about this it's a little bit of a waste of time it's like that game already exists i mean it's it's cool and it's great that they've done a really high quality version of it but it really exists what these guys really needed was a new design um so that conversation happened and then within days we had the kickstarter for the spectrum next um and we were seeing this and we know um henrique um who was uh, running the campaign and we thought oh that's really nice spectrum next hdmi cable on the back and everything plug it in be able to sort of download and play play sort of all the original games and people will create new games for it that's really cool we'd like to sort of support them and get behind it somehow um now there's no point in us just sort of becoming a single new kickstarter we're thinking we kind of need to use our name and our reputation to sort of chivy it along a bit um and we were just discussing saying well we're not going to make a spectrum new spectrum game for it because we haven't got the time to do that probably haven't got the talent to do it either to be fair but <laughs> used to be able to do it not in the zone anymore for programming z80 i'm afraid um so um but then we was like hang on a minute those guys a few days ago that we were talking to that created crystal kingdom why if we gave them a new design and then we said that that's our contribution to the sort of Kickstarter campaign that we're making new um, Spectrum Dizzy game. Um, that'd be awesome. We're like, oh yeah, that'd be great. Right, we'll get in touch with the guys who did this new Crystal Kingdom and uh, basically messaged them and said, if we design a new game, would you make it? There's no money changes hands or anything like that. Um, would you do it? And then it just helps this Kickstarter campaign. And, and they were like, hey, yeah, we'll be honored to sort of do a new, new Dizzy game, be the official new Dizzy game. You guys design it will code it and do the graphics and the audio and so that's that's how that all came about um one thing i would say that we hadn't fully contemplated when we excitedly said to the world and made a little video of that we'll do this is we hadn't actually decided what the game would be at all we had no idea and it's only after that went out that we suddenly realized we'd set ourselves a very difficult challenge and that is that people have rose-tinted glasses and they look back on those games from their childhood and they remember them better than they actually were. Um, and they make a real impression. And we suddenly realise we can't make a game that is worse than any of the other games, and that's absolutely obvious, but different people have different opinions. I mean, I personally like uh, Fantasy World Dizzy is my best game, but you will find people who like the original Dizzy better than that. A lot of people like Treasure Island Dizzy, even though it's only got one life, which is a huge mistake we made, but anyway. Um, but a lot of people seem to really like it. So we were thinking, well, we've got to make sure that whatever we create, now that it's sort of some 25, 30 years later, that everybody perceives it to be at least as good, if not better. And really, we need to be aiming better because 
there are better tools and people have better, uh, higher expectations. And we're having to deal with these rose-tinted glasses of, I remember growing up when I was 12 and I wasn't critical and I didn't notice the problems. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Whereas now everybody's going to kind of scrutinise it. So it only dawned on us after we put the video out that we actually had a mammoth task in front of us um of actually making sure that the new wonderful dizzy was actually the best in the series and kind of anything less than that would actually cause us lots of problems um so that's what we set out to make i'll let you speak now shall i (laughs) (laughs) that's perfectly fine um i so there's a there's a whole bunch of questions around. Yeah, that. I'm yeah. sorry. You know, I did I mean, do a, no, mon- no, I did a bit of a monologue there. It's fine. No, that's that's perfectly fine. That that it just means I need to create fewer questions, right? That's all that is. Uh, but yeah, uh, so uh, one of the things that I would like to know, if you if you do know, I don't know whether you know because you were saying it was the other the other folks out in Eastern Europe that created the newer the newer titles. Is I would love to know just because I'm a developer. It's a bit of a, a maybe a uh, a self-indulgent question, but like, how have the tools changed for ZX uh, development from you know back then when it was you and your brother presumably in your bedrooms typing away in ZX? It was in my bedroom. Like, I had a slightly, oh, big, I had a slightly bigger bedroom, but that was fine. ah, that, that explains it. Yeah. So you, you're sitting there with the, just typing in Z80 um, assembler, yeah. somehow pushing a build button, and you get a cassette tape out of it. But now there'll obviously be a lot more involved than that, right? Uh, yeah. So the way we de- developed the original games was on an Amstrad uh, 664 originally, and then we bought a 6128 as well. So we had these two Amstrads set up, and we had a Maxam assembler uh, shoved in the back. And you can only... And the reason those Amstrads were so good was they had disk drives, because um, a lot of people back then were saving and loading data to cassettes. What a god-awful medium that is. But anyway, <laughs> it's bad enough just loading the game. But trust me, if you're trying to develop using cassettes, it's, it's terrible. Um, but anyway, we used these because they had disk drives. And the disk drives were great. And the Maxim Assembler was great. And we could type our code, um, save it onto the disks. And using disks, we can kind of swap code backwards and forwards. Um, and we would um, then be able to compile a, um, a, a ROM image, so just the binary, and then squirt it down the printer cable at the spectrum with a special uh, cable we made. Um, well, a friend of ours actually made um, a splink cable, a uh, spectrum to Amstrad link or spam. That's it. It was spam. Um, spectrum to Amstrad link. Um, and that would squirt it down and fill the spectrum memory. And I say fill. Um, you've only got about, I think it's 34K usable out of 48K. Uh, so it'd fill it, fill it up and then execute um, the code so we could fill the whole spectrum memory and bang it would go it was a brilliant development system hence the reason we developed so many games is we had a a superb development um, environment how has it changed now well the environment's got a heck of a lot better now Um, so when we compiled it would probably take 10 minutes or something so you go off and make a coffee and you don't just change a single variable and recompile and see how that works you basically do two or three hours worth of coding making loads of notes as you're going because you are trying to test half a dozen different things all at the same time because if you're going to compile you want to get as much in there as possible compile as much as possible and and then test as much as possible all in one go um and then when you press the compile you off make some coffee nowadays um 
it's all PC based. Um, you can exchange files just on the internet. Um, we were exchanging files with Dropbox. So we all shared a Dropbox um, and put everything into the Dropbox and all the source code was there, um, all the graphics and all the designs and maps and everything. We were using Google Docs for the actual design. Um, we've got a Google spreadsheet with um, all the map laid out. Um, so everything is, instead of all the, the paper notes and uh, I mean, the original maps were sort of drawn on like blood wallpaper and large boards and things. Now it's just a very large spreadsheet. Um, I still hand drew all the sort of original screens and then scanned them all in, put them on the spreadsheet and linked it all up. Um, and then obviously the software, when you go to compile with a modern compiler, I mean, it's, well, it's a microsecond. You don't even notice it and bang, it's running. It just, and it's just running in another window. Um, I wasn't actually in Eastern Europe to see their setup, but they've probably got half a dozen different screens as well. So it's like, oh, well, that screen's a Spectrum one, that's the, that one, and that's that one. And because um, that's what most developers do these days is have multiple screens set up. Um, and it's all kind of instant, which does mean that if you want to just tweak a variable, you just tweak a variable, hit go and just carry on. Um, so I guess that's, that's kind of what's changed when it comes to all the graphics. Um, there was quite a pipeline that we had to go through. We'd actually written our own software to do graphics. Um, whereas these days people will use, um, uh, paint.net or Photoshop. And I think there are some uh, special spectrum editing packages as well, which kind of, they're linked to the attributes and pixel based and only the colors of spectrum can do. Um, but, but I didn't get involved in that bit, I'm afraid. Okay. No, that's cool. That's cool. Um, yeah. I, cause that, cause that was going to be, I love the idea of, of developing on one machine and throwing it down to another. So machine. that, that's, so that, well, I was going to say that, um, all consoles are programmed that way and have been um, forever. We actually weren't aware. I mean, that's because that's how sort of Atari started by doing this sort of, but we weren't aware that that's how things worked. You didn't have the internet. You didn't have books on the subject or anything like that. It's just a method that we kind of worked out ourselves and our competitors hadn't, which is why we were able... I mean, there were several reasons why we managed to make so many games. One, working stupid hours. Um, but two, two of us always helps. You've probably heard of pair programming. Um, it's actually always a good idea to have another person at your level that can kind of challenge you sometimes, but be helping um, and cooperating with you other times. So pair programming, so that works. But we also, um, some of the first projects that we did, and this was partly because of kind of O-level um, computer studies, is an art package, and then we turned that into a sprite package. Uh, so um, we were actually, we made our own art package and then our own sprite package. And again, the tools weren't there for people. So we made our own tools, and then we made our own development environment. Um, a few years later, this would actually all be commercialized, and you'd be able to buy these things off the shelf. Um and in fact, we went on to buy PDS, the Programmer's Development System, um, which basically was a card that you slotted into a PC and then a cable out to any computer you wanted. And that, the whole industry moved to PDS in about 88, 89. Um, and that's the way things have kind of ever been, have been ever since. But actually places like in America and Atari and the arcades, like, developers like namco and data eastern they'd been doing that sort of approach anyway sort of using um, pcs i guess or or even machines before that linked off to sort of chips and silicon boards and sort of hand soldered wires <laughs> out of chips and stuff um we didn't have any of that 
All right. It's, it's really interesting that you say those kinds of things because like um, the uh, – so, so here's what I find interesting, right? The computer studies of the 70s and 80s were very much a case of the tools don't exist. So why don't you build the tool and then you can use the tool to to study the course, right? Because then you're studying to, the programming, yeah, to a certain learning extent. how the computer works. Absolutely, to a certain extent. I would say it's the, the more advanced people did that, um, the less advanced people. I mean, it was always a little bit disappointing because when we – so our – our studies were 85, 84, 85. And they had these horrible machines. I'm just trying to think what they were called with floppy disks that were like eight inches wide. Um, and you'd spend half the lesson doing this strange reconfiguration of your disk to move sectors around just so you could resave your project onto it. And most, most of the lesson was used up with that. What was brilliant was halfway through the course, they got a couple of BBCs in. Now, at the same time, we managed to convince our parents that we needed a BBC Micro. And BBC yeah. Micros just were revolutionary. I mean, they were superb. And then the minute they turned up in the computer studies class, well, me and Andrew already had one at home. So we were off and we were just like, oh, do you want to see what we did last night? Do you want to see what we did last week? And, oh, I'll help you over there and I'll help you over there. And so we were making all sorts of st- stuff. Um, and that's, yeah, that's when we got really really into coding uh, big time um, BBC micro and and so did so many people in the UK I mean the whole games industry in the UK is founded from people who sort of most people who came up through the BBC there are some that came up through an Amstrad or a Spectrum um, or or even a Dragon I know one guy who came up through a Dragon but it's like <laughs> yeah the BBC it probably accounts for 60 70 percent of and not just uh, programmers and not just the games industry it's like programmers across all industry but also it stuff across many industries as well they'll all trace their back and go yeah bbc micro that's what got me in It is. It is really interesting to look at that because, like, um, Squidge and I, um, our our first computer was a Amstrad CPC four six four. Yay! Yeah. Okay, so oh, slight yes. predecessor to ours, and obviously <laughs> we'd already fallen out with cassettes. Um, we well, the thing is that we'd started with right. We started with a um, seeing friends ZX eighty, pretty poor. Our brother got a ZX eighty one. Interesting, but there's a really important lesson you learn from a ZX eighty one. Do you know what it is? You need a better computer. That's what you learn. <laughs> so you just you just get the idea of like, oh wow, I can type on this. Yeah, but this keyboard is bloody awful. Oh wow, I can put <laughs> stuff on screen. Yeah, but I can't put much on screen and it looks god awful. Oh, I can make sound. Yeah, but it sounds awful. So basically you realize I need more RAM. I need a decent keyboard. I need color. I need resolution. You learn all the terms really, really quickly because they're all the things you really haven't got or you've just got <laughs> like a smacking yeah. off. So we upgraded from a ZX81, which was our brother's anyway. You know, like He never used it. Um to a Dragon 32. Um, and a Dragon 32 had a decent keyboard, it had colour, and it had a better resolution. Uh, so that was fa- that was fantastic. And we started programming that. Um, and we got quite, quite good at that, but it was a little bit slow. And then we saw what a BBC Micro could do. It was like, oh, that's so much better. Um, and by that time, we were... We, we weren't any good at coding, but we were certainly... We'd got the bug. 
Um, we wanted to be good at programming. We wanted to spend loads of time, and and, and we just blamed the computer at being crap. Uh, of course, and, and of, course, <laughs> of course, if we had a decent computer, we'd be able to make games like you can see in the arcades. Um, and that was always the kind of dream. And we always used to sort of try and make Pac-Man, um, and and it. It, it was just too difficult on Dragon. Uh, but then the minute you got a BBC, it's like, ah. Oh. And then you actually discover, hmm, basic isn't cutting it. We need to do this kind of machine code assembler. But then the BBC had a method of doing that built in, which was, I mean, you still had to learn the skills, um, but at least it was there for you and available for you. Um, obviously, we the reason we moved to an Amstrad, so, so that BBC, we eventually bought a disk drive for. And the minute you've bought a disk drive and you've got a disk drive, you ain't going back to cassettes. Um, mm. So so the Amstrad came out. It's like, oh, an interesting machine, but it's cassette-based. And then the 664 came out. And then it's like, man, that's got, that's got a disk drive as well. And then um, Firebird... Um, which was one of the software developers at the time, basically said, look, we'll get, we'll get you some early machines um, because we want some of your software on those machines. It was actually easy art and panda sprites. Uh, we want you to put those onto the Amstrad and we'll get you a couple of early, uh, early 664s from the factory, um, which is what they did. And they were, yeah, wonderful machines. That's amazing. Just like, like, cause I, I, I think even if, even if you're not into development, knowing that like right now, there are maybe two, maybe three at a push. If you're really, really sort of specific about the operating system, there are two types of computers. There's a PC and a Mac. <laughs> Whereas the early 80s was, hey, we've just designed something on a piece of paper. We've thrown it together and we're start, starting to sell it now. There's no software, there's no nothing, but good luck. Give us you know, 500, 600, 700 pounds for a computer and you can't really do anything with it. And that's... It's, it was like the Wild West. It, it was. <laughs> it was like the Wild West. Unfortunately, it was also like the Wild West when it came to publishers. Um, and quite frankly, most 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 publishers who set up were like, oh, we can't believe this. We get all these kids making these games for free. We sell loads and we don't actually even need to pay them, pay these developers because because they haven't got lawyers and they're hardly going to chase us because they're school kids. Um, and so a lot of the early um, publishing deals were just har- absolutely horrendous with people just getting ripped off left, right and centre. Um, and yeah, there wasn't a, a lot anybody could do about it. Um, and we, we found the Darling Brothers and we found them to be pretty honest, um, up straight and honest. And they had this philosophy of selling the games very cheap, sort of $1.99 and $2.99. Um, $1.99 originally when we first met them and when they were just setting up. And their philosophy was it will avoid piracy. Nobody's going to bother to pirate cassettes at that stage. If they see a mate's um, version of it, they'll just go, I'll just go and get my own. It's like, there's no point in doing a tape to tape copy of it. um, Because you'll have loading problems anyway, if you do that. Um, But as a result, you're going to sell four or five times the number. If you sell four or five times the number, you're going to make the same money that you would have made if you're selling it at eight pounds or 10 pounds. But every single customer is going to be a lot happier because they get a higher quality experience and they didn't pay much for it. Um, and, and we're like, well, that seems a pretty good philosophy if your sales do actually come through, um, if the sales are four or five times the number. And so we said, okay, we'll, we'll give it a go. And Super Robin Hood was the first game that we sort of pitched to them and we developed it. And lo and behold, the sales came through. And it's like, wow, this actually works, this theory. Um, and then it was just like, right, more games, more games, more games. And actually, people were a little bit more forgiving of 
um, putting out games at 199 and 299 than if you were trying to put out a game at 10 pounds. Um, I mean, some of the games that we put out, we only ever gave, we gave ourselves always a month to develop a game. Um, whereas back in those days, if you were developing a game which you're going to put out at 10 pounds or 12 pounds with the kind of regular prices, you would be expected to spend six plus months on it. Some people would take a year or a year and a half to develop a game like this, which, quite frankly, you get so tired of um, getting up every day just looking at the same flipping thing that we really like the idea of like, right, game a month and we'll just ship it, whatever, whatever, whatever. And I wouldn't say every game was perfect, but it gives you lots of um, time a lot of uh, iteration time because back in those days if you were developing something for six months there's no iteration it's what what you ship is what you ship you can see all the ideas i've come up with since six months from now uh, whereas we were actually able to turn things around pretty quick so um as a result we tried lots of different things some some things worked really well some things didn't work so well so dizzy was actually a spin-off from ghost hunters Ghost Hunters, it did okay. It was an all right game, but it had a few little issues with it. But then we kind of fixed up all those issues and just changed the image around a bit, chucked it out as dizzy, didn't know how it would go. And to be fair, it didn't go particularly well at first. It was only the fact that sales just were consistent and actually, if anything, rising, that a year later we're like, actually, this thing sold pretty well. Well, let's do another version of this. Whereas if you had to do, if you had to commit to six months to do a game, you had to be so sure of everything you were doing that you would be doing it to a formula. You wouldn't be trying new new and different things because that would be too risky. So as a result, we were able to put out a lot of different ideas. And as I say, some worked better than others. So just, just something to point out there, just two things. Well, there's a number of things there, but two things that stu- uh, stuck out of me was $199 and $299. You say that to someone now, They'll just look at you stupid. And two, a month for a development cycle. One mm-hmm. month. Not years, month. <laughs> so I <laughs> that is, say, that's unreal. Looking looking back on it, um, I mean, wonderful Dizzy by the way, took about two and a half years. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it was done it was done as a hobby on the side and people sort of did it. But looking back on the volume of work that we did in the short space of time. It's hard to believe we actually did it. Um, and um, yeah. it's hard to believe that we could have squeezed it in the memory. It's hard. Um, but we did work insane hours. I mean, when after Super Robin Hood took off and went straight to number one and went ballistic, we had just given up school in like rather than going to university, we'll take a year out and we'll see if we can make some games. We were getting up at sort of um, eight o'clock in the morning and just working straight. Um, sort of parents would sort of come in with occasional coffees or it's tea time. We'd, we'd go, we'd eat, we'd go straight back again. And we'd work through to sort of midnight, two o'clock in the morning and up the next day and seven days a week, 365 days a year, because we just had to make the maximum of of that maximize the opportunity that was in front of us we knew after doing super robin hood if we make another game in a month we've got another bestseller and if we make another one after that we've got another bestseller and if we make another one after that and it was like just keep going just keep going just keep going and of course you get faster and faster and faster doing it but also a lot of the code um is the same code you're using so you develop a really good sprite engine um you develop a sort of a good um, mapping system for doing backgrounds and a collision system and an animation system. And effectively, you just 
redressing it and putting a new image on it and tweaking a few of the values and put it out again. So, I mean, things like um, Grand Prix Simulator 2 and uh, Jet Jet Ski Simulator, they're 95% plus the same code. It's just, we just changed all the variables and changed the graphics. And it's like, oh, no, how can a Grand Prix Simulator game be the same as um, jet skiing? And it's like they, they appear to be two different images. But actually, if you look at the games, um, and even the, the look looks a little bit different because they're all different courses, they're all different graphics, and we've tweaked all the variables. But underneath, it's pretty much the same code, um, which is cool. And all, obviously, all the Dizzy games are pretty much the same code. But that's that's what we would expect. They're just different adventures. Mm-hmm. They're yeah, improved makes each sense. time. With kind of new features yeah. being added, like adding the characters and adding sort of the the, te- the text windows and stuff like that, but fundamentally it's the same code underneath. Mm. That makes perfect sense. Um, you know the, uh, the the very first programming lesson that I ever had, the first professional programming lesson, I'd been messing around in BASIC and then things for years before then. But uh, the first pr- proper programming lesson I had was the lecturer said to me, um, "Programming is like Lego." You build components, you take, like you were saying, you build an animation system and a sprite system and a sound system, and then you glue them together and add other things either on top or around them to change the experience. Yeah. And that's that's what programming is, you know? It, it, it is. It certainly is. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that, that, that makes sense to me that you can go from, if we have a stable code base that we can maybe take a copy of, uh, so that's another question I'll come back to in a minute. You can maybe take a copy of it, make some changes, make some tweaks. Yeah, stri- strip it down a little bit, strip it down a little bit, and then kind of build it up in in a different direction. So Ghost Hunters, you take your Ghost Hunters master, and then you basically strip out a load of stuff, and then put in all the sort of dizzy stuff and the, sort of, and the, mm. the different settings, and then ship it. <laughs> That's exactly it. It's the same with like building houses, right? You've got a basic framework for a house and then you'll go, right, okay, so we'll move the bedrooms around and we'll paint this room blue and that room yellow. Take that same template, go and make another house, shift the rooms around, paint this room orange in this room. I'm not very good at interior design. I don't know if you can tell. Blue <laughs> and yellow, not a very good parent. I'll be honest, <laughs> m- modern housing estates, they don't even change that much. You can go down a road and it's like, they're all exactly the same. Or, yep. or actually, one of the, one of the tricks, one, uh, we bought a house. Uh, me and Andrew actually bought a four-bedroom house when we were age 19. And it was interesting because it was a brand new house on a housing estate. And they'd flipped them left to right. So you go into the next door neighbor's house and it was like a mirror image. And it's like, oh, this is a bit wacky. <laughs> I think they just kind of put it on a photocopier and turned it upside down or something. And you yeah. go, there's the plans for the next house. <laughs> Modern architecture, copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste. That's copy, exactly that's it. <laughs> so my question, I have, I have a question about, so um, I feel like, Hopefully you can all hear the bunny quotes I'm about to do. Proper source control. We'll talk about what that is uh, mm-hmm. later if, if we need to. Is more of a uh, sort of mid nineties onwards practice. Sure. How did how did you and your brother sort of manage? So uh, first squidge's point of view source control is you write it up and then you take a copy of that and then you can make minor changes to it and you take a copy of that and make minor. It's almost like that, you know, like in say MS Word, you've got track revisions. It's kind yeah, of like that. It is. It is. Um, so when there's only two of you and you're sitting right next to each other, like two two two, two feet away from each other, um, what we were doing was. Um, 
separating the, the game into sort of sections. So uh, it tended to be one person do all foreground and one person do all background. So anything to do with setting up the levels, setting up the backgrounds or, or the title screens or the menus or, or anything, do that. You'd have already stripped... You take a previous game, you strip it all down, and you go, right, Andrew, could you work on all of the... Uh, let's say he was doing foreground on this particular game. So you make sure that the new animation system um, is up and running, and it does this, 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 and this, and this. I'll do all the background, and then those two bits of code are fairly um, separate. He builds up on his base. I build up on my base, so we've got two different ones. But when I've got a really good chunk of solid, finished work, I then say, right, I'm going to cut and paste that into yours. So I'm going to save it out just onto my floppy disk, hand the floppy disk over to you, you load my project up, big cut and paste into yours, just check it compiles. And the other thing is... Being twins and learning together and always sitting together, we think very similar. So yeah. when it came to sort of structure and architecture and variables and naming and all that, it was always pretty similar. Um, so it, mm. it slotted together quite nicely. When we actually started um, hiring people with sort of with Blitz Games, we, it was one of the th first things. That, well, there were lots of things that surprised us. Um, our work ethic and their work ethic was quite quite a shocker. <laughs> uh, <laughs> people just roll up when they want, and then they play games and they take <laughs> millions of coffees. And it's like, uh, guys, we're actually supposed to be doing some work. Um, but anyway, that's another story. Um, but the the we didn't realize that everybody has so many different techniques and so many different ways of doing things that when you put two programmers together it doesn't bind together nicely unless you really planned it to whereas we'd never really had to do that planning because we both learned exactly the same way and we also pretty think was pretty we think alike anyway so mm. if i was to tackle a problem chances are andy would have tackled it in exactly the same way so that when he's looking to integrate with my work it sort of just slots together i mean that is actually another interesting thing is that we we're always in development kind of push forward push forward push forward i don't think in something like five or six years we threw away a line of code or a graphic image it's like everything we did just went straight in use it straight in use it there was no iteration there was no actually let's rip out this whole big chunk throw it away and rewrite it um which the minute we actually went into a company i mean we we didn't really think about sort of the efficiency level that we must have been working at. But when we went into a company, we found that our efficiency level just plummeted. It's like there are meetings, there are discussions on planning, there are people doing things in the wrong direction, there are people losing stuff. And all these different things meant that the the inefficiencies were extreme. And then we were like, hang on a minute, we've just taken it for granted that every line of code and every graphic that we ever did was published in a, in a successful game. There was nothing yeah. thrown, in, thrown away. There was nothing ever redone. Um, and the minute you went into a business, you realize, oh, it doesn't normally work like that. And I mean, we, we got as efficient as we could as a business. Um, and I think we were more efficient than most. Um, and yeah, talking around the rest of the industry, we were still shipping games a lot faster than most people were. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's. Uh, I feel like it's been quite self-indulgent so far because we've just talked mainly development stuff. <laughs> that's okay. But, you know, can, can I, I can I get yeah. us back on track with what we actually Absolutely. want to talk about? Please, please, please. <laughs> okay, see, I'm, I'm on. I'm, you, 
I'm only going to say this because I can't say Dizzy that quick. X-X-X-X-X-X-X-X-X-X. I love Dizzy! <laughs> Sorry. So that's the segue into the next okay. <laughs> Yeah, so like there was, you'd already said that because one of my questions was, what was the inspiration for Dizzy? And you said it's like we'll take, we'll take the previous game and we'll that maybe didn't do so well. We'll sort of iterate on it and make it better. Yeah, that was it really. I mean, so the first, um, I guess it's a it's a side on platform at the end of the day um, with sort of puzzle solving built in. So what had actually happened was that we'd seen games like um, Panic, where you're running up and down the ladders and running along the ledges and digging a little hole and monsters fall in. Um, in fact, it was called Monsters on the BBC, but Panic in the arcades. Um, and we quite liked that idea of doing um, a side-on game. And so we'd come up with the idea. When we'd um, finished sixth form and we were supposed to go to university, our dad told us to um, make sure that we made a proper business of it and we we got some decent money um etc etc and he also said if you can earn more than me which we never know what that was but if you can earn more than me in your first year then you won't have to go to university and quite frankly we didn't want to go to university because we just wanted to make games um, and there weren't any university game courses back then so um so during that summer um, we were trying to identify what sells because if you're going to make lots of money, you need to make what sells. Think about the market first and then make what fits the market. And the big selling game at the time was Ghostbusters. And our takeaway from the fact that that was the number one game at the time, our takeaway was people pick that game off the shelf and purchase it because they like the image of Ghostbusters, not because they like the game, because we quickly examined the game and decided it was god-awful. Um, that, that was our conclusion. Um, rightly or wrongly, I have met a lot of people who like Ghostbusters the game. We didn't. Um, so our conclusion, our conclusion was that people were picking that game off the shelf and buying it because they like the image of Ghostbusters. Um, and so we thought, right, it's all about licenses and it's all about image. We can't buy a license. So we came up with the idea of we want to do this side-on platformer and we need a license, but we can't buy one. So is there a free one out there we can use? And we came up with the idea of Robin Hood. And we thought, well, Robin Hood's really good. He's Everybody knows what Robin Hood is. He's a hero. He's got a mission. It's inside a castle. Oh, castles, they're, they're good for ladders and ledges. Um, he's got a mission, go and kind of rescue Maid Marion. And there'll be gold along the way because um, you, you're robbing the castle. Give it to the poor, obviously. So we're thinking, well, this is a perfect setup. So we put this um, pitch on a piece of paper and took it to Codemasters. And they basically said, we'll sell that game if you make it. Because it was just handwritten on paper. Um, we made the game um, in the space of a month, partly because we didn't want Codemasters changing their mind. They were going to publish this game. So we had to make it very fast before they changed their minds. And that was incredibly successful. So we thought, well, we want to do another Ladders and Ledges game um, because we want to use all this code. And it was pretty good code, but we need a completely different image. We can't just sell Robin Hood 2 immediately. You'll just butcher your own sales. You need a completely different image. Uh, we're massive fans of Scooby-Doo, um, the haunted castles and, and all that kind of stuff. So we thought that's it we'll kind of go scooby-doo and haunted castles haunted mansion and we'll we'll do a similar game just reskinned and so that's where ghost hunters came from which by the way might sound a little bit like ghostbusters <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, you if you hadn't noticed 
Um, anyway, <laughs> but in that but in that game, we decided to put lots of pickups to turn or to to open doors and open ledges and turn lifts on and stuff, which we did done a little bit of in Robin Hood, but not much. But we decided to add a lot more into Ghost Hunters with lots of different containers. So there were flasks and other bits and pieces, keys and flasks and all this. But a flask did open a door or turn a ladder on or something. But why a flask? And so whilst we were developing it, we sort of say, well, that kind of makes no sense. It's really, if you're opening a door, you need a key. And if you're turning a, a, um, a lift on or something, you need some kind of lever or something. And then we're like, hmm, maybe the next game we do, we actually think of lots of kind of puzzle adventures. It's like to open this bit of the route, you will need this object and we'll put the object somewhere else. So that's where that idea came from. And as for the actual character, well, we wanted to do another side on um, game. We could, we've already done Robin Hood and the kind of castle and all that. Can't do that, done. We've done Ghosts and can't do that. And then we were at the time watching the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon on TV. Um, and that reminded us of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and all this kind of stuff. We were like, and in fact, um, another a game that we'd seen was the Smurfs a few years earlier. And we were thinking some mishmash between all of those. We can kind of create our own sort of little fantasy world, um, a little bit kind of Tolkien-esque. Um, we can put a new character in, a um, little cartoon character. We love cartoons, so we'll make a little cartoon character and we'll put him in. Because the problem with Ghost Hunters um, and Robin Hood, well, Robin Hood looked like a cartoon man, but Ghost Hunters, we were trying to make it look like a real man. And in that resolution and those colours, it really doesn't look particularly good. Um, so we thought, well, we'll just make, we'll make, we'll go all out, just make a little cartoon character um, and that'd be fine. And the idea of the actual cartoon character itself came about because i was frustrated when drawing the the head of the ghost hunter's man buster um see see where see we ghost anyway um, completely different completely different uh, completely oh, yeah. different yeah um anyway buster um when i was drawing him i only had three pixels by three pixels with three colors um and really trying to draw a face in that resolution you don't really have a lot of choices. Um, if you try putting a nose on, it looks like, like Pinocchio. So you kind of go flat faced. Uh, and I was like frustrated that I couldn't get any expression into the face because as far as I was concerned, if you were going to have any empathy for a character, you needed to see its face. Um, otherwise you had no empathy for it. So I just inside the sprite package, the panda sprites we we're making, I just drew a big face. And I say, hey, look, you can make him smile, you can make him sad, you can make him kind of um, like uh, wiggly, wiggly mouth, like looking scared. Um, and you can blink his eyes. And I was saying, look, it's, it's really cool. You can kind of do a big face. The problem was that's all I had. It was a face. And it's like, uh, we can only move so many pixels around the screen. So you're going to have to move around this big face. And it's like, well, I stick some little boots on him and stick some little hands on him. Well, the hands look like gloves, but okay. And because the only, we only have three colors, then they had to be red. Um, because that was one of the, th you only had four colors total on the, on the computer, but you had to have one of those saved for transparency. So, um, so that's, he, he evolved through the technical restrictions of trying to make you feel empathetic towards a character by being able to see facial expressions and it worked. <laughs> and that's how dizzy, and that's how dizzy evolved. That's awesome. And and that is it's it's the necessity right there. Necessity is the mother of invention. You wanted to create a character that you could feel for, and the only way to do that, like you said, was draw a big face, put some hands and arms on it, and there's your character. Yeah, right. Because there was no space for kind of anything else after you've done the big face, <laughs> and then people kept calling it this big face on egg, and it's like, 
if you like. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in more recent years, we've kind of made him look a lot better um, featured. And if you look in Wonderful Dizzy, he's got a rucksack on, he's got a lovely hat, safari hat on, and he looks really cool now. I mean, if you look back on the original one, it looks really basic, And but um, that's kind of because I drew it. Um, and I'm not really an artist. Uh, whereas now, now I sort of said to the artists on, on doing Wonderful Dizzy is, I want a backpack and I want a hat. Um, he's got to look really good. And in the same resolution, they've managed to put all that in, and it looks ace. Perhaps that's because of the uh, the 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 better tooling, you know, because it, it, uh, better artistry. Well, <laughs> 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 okay, fair enough. I mean, I was I was trying to not go down that route, but okay, if you're happy to go down that route, then I am. Fine. It's fine. <laughs> I'd be quite humble about our skills. I mean, I think we we were good at jack of all trades, which you kind of needed to be. When when you were um, an eight bit developer, you couldn't have a big team with. Hey, I've got an audio guy, and I've got a designer, and I've got a writer, and I've got a coder, and there's a coder on engine, there's a coder on logic, there's a coder on. It's like no, no, no. It's like you're lucky if you had two people. It's like um, and you had to cover all bases. Um, and we we were lucky. We did have two of us, um, and both of us can cover all bases. Um, and we did mix match. Uh, maybe not so much the audio. We 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 were not very good at audio, but luckily um, there was a, a kid down the road who we sort of got him into computers, and then said, "You seem to know music. Maybe if we kind of give give you some tools and give you some engine and sort of set it all up for you, maybe you can make us some uh, tunes." Um, and he did, and he did a really good job. I like that. We got him into computers so he could write the music for us. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> he was he was fine about it because, I mean, um, uh, he was a couple of years younger than us. So when you're that age, you kind of, you look up to people, but also we were sort of public, we were publishing games and it's like, oh man, it's like you, you make games and you publish them and you want me to make music for you. And it's like, yeah, yeah please then <laughs> like, we paid him for it it's like it was all good i mean he went on to go and get um uh sort of go into the uh it industry programming and software and he had a great career um still does i mean he, i talk to him every now and then and yeah he's got a great career fantastic it's, and, and it's you and your brother who are directly responsible for that oh i think uh, <laughs> we've been responsible for inspiring not so much sort of being there and holding people's hands but inspiring a lot of people to get into games i mean we always get it when back in the sort of playstation one era we'd get loads of people who come for interviews at sort of blitz games basically i only got into games because of you guys and the dizzy and simulators and all this kind of stuff um I'll also interview Nick Cody's. It's like, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> um, Hey-ho. Um, but um, you don't get it so much these days, but that's because it's almost a different generation. That generation now in the games industry or in some other industry. Um, so when, uh, although, I mean, I had a, a, an interesting chat with somebody um, yesterday on Twitter that uh, he's a senior lecturer, uh, professor actually, at one of the universities on the game course, and he got into it because of Dizzy, and he says, all of my students know about Dizzy. <laughs> so they may not have been born when you did it, but um, and they may never have played one, but yeah, you know about it now. <laughs> I think, though, like you said earlier on, you know, the, the, the British games industry is is incredibly important. You know, the, the most of the folks that are in the industry now came from the BBC Micro. You know, things like uh, yourselves, Codemasters, Rare, 
These are all companies that are based in the UK that started around that time, right? Sure, sure. Yeah, and they're huge. And they're, the number of people that are now employed in the UK, I mean, what is it? It's 40 or 50,000 or something uh, people making games in the UK. And they're great, they're great careers. I mean, for a lot of people, it's like they don't see it as a drudgery this is their their career and and they love it and it's creative and they'd kind of be doing this as a hobby if they weren't doing it full-time i mean obviously when something is full-time and and it becomes your job it's a it takes a shine off it a little bit but not too much nobody would give it up mm-hmm. absolutely I, i'm the same way although i do you know business learn apps and enterprise stuff i'm the same way i'm like oh i'll fiddle around like um as we're recording this now we i recently put out a short podcast episode about the importance of play Mm. and um and i literally used the phrase i said um speak to a developer about a new technology and they will use the phrase i haven't had a chance to play with it yet yeah no i haven't built anything with it not good i haven't i haven't yeah it's it's play and that's what we do we get paid to play Well, crazily enough, we're going to go and set up another studio, as you as you well know, to to do it again. Because although we don't have to now, because we did sell a sell our business recently, uh, a couple of years ago. Um, so some people have just said you could retire. It's like ah, no, it's too much fun making stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So we're going to go and do it again um, and make some new stuff. It, it really is. It really is fun. Um, even even when you're like, you get frustrated because you can't figure it out. But it's not the frustration bit because you quickly get past that. As soon as you hit that button, um, in my tools, it's F5, but whichever tools you're using. As soon as you hit that button and the thing you were creating pops up on screen and you can fully interact with it. And you're like, oh, this is amazing. I made this. It can, I did it this. can be frustrating whilst you're doing it, though, I have to say. Mm. <laughs> um, one of the reasons I kind of ended up kind of getting out of code was I would just get more and more frustrated as to how tricky everything was becoming um, and how much learning there was, just constantly learning, learning, learning. Um, but at the same time, I also had lots of other pulls in my time um, because I was going into management and there were people kind of needing stuff. There was the finances, there was the legals. At home, I had a family and she's like, too many pulls on my time. Something's got to <laughs> give. Something's got to give. And I'm afraid it was code- coding this. had to take, <laughs> to, uh, had to finish. Um, and you can, once... Once you've got out of it for a few years, it's very, very difficult to get back into it, to get up to speed again. It is, it is. Um, w- would you recommend that as a, as a thing? Not not get out of coding, but like look at your life and figure out where the stresses are and go, like, can I jettison this? <laughs> Having gone through that yourself, would you, would you recommend that? Um, <laughs> well, so to, to a certain extent, you do have to just sort of work out what your priorities are um, and, and lose the ones that are causing you the most stress. I would completely agree with that, which is what I had to do. I mean, it is slightly frustrating because when it was just me and Andrew making the games, they really felt like they were our games. When we were at Blitz, we're proud of all the games, but they felt less like they were our games. Um, Mm. uh, But whilst we were still doing a lot of the design, or as our teams would call it, interfering... uh, (laughs) 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 I'd like to to think of it as design. Um, But... um, as we as we were doing that, it was like we still had some sort of creative um, input into them, um, but as the company grew, I mean, Blitz Games got up to about two hundred and fifty people. You, we did get into a situation where it was quite stressful, but it was about 
all the wrong things, all the all the things you didn't want to have to worry about. You just wanted to make games. You didn't want to have to worry about the finances and the legals and the cash flow and and this this member of staff causing you a load of grief or that one's going to quit. And if he does, oh, my God, what's that going to do? Because actually he's a kingpin over here, here and here. And, oh, and just so many issues of just running a business which just kind of took over and did sap a lot of the enjoyment out of it the problem is that you're in charge by that time it's like well you can't walk away from it very easily um that's not to say we weren't proud of it every time we shipped a game we had a big party and and you look at the finished game and whilst every game could be better you're looking at a game that's not bad considering uh (laughs) there was always a considering it's like mm-hmm. i mean we never had the, the the budgets that some of these other people had i mean when you're on ps2 people had like 10 times the budget of us and yet our game had to go out exactly the same price on the shelf next to their game it's like they had 10 times the budget not fair <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. but but you did the best you could with with what you had and we still made some great games and we're still very proud of those games mm. excellent have you any other comments, Squidge? I know you spent the afternoon playing some of the Dizzy games oh. on the Oliver Twins website, oh. and you wrote down loads of comments. Oh, I was just wondering if you had any more. It's cool, it, isn't it, that you can actually just play them in the website? Yeah, yeah. yeah it was. It sort of it dawned on me very quickly that with the history of me playing games and stuff, it sort of dawned on me that through rose-tinted glasses and sort of like going back and forth and what have you, that I completely forgot about a period of like four to eight-ish years of between when I was five into my early teens when me and this guy had an Amstrad and that Dizzy was one of those games and the nostalgia and the feels, just just hearing that music, finding the game that I played, you know, realising that when I was younger, my hands were small, I didn't know what I was doing. Now I'm a lot older, my hands are a little bit bigger and I still don't know what I'm doing. But, you know, just, <laughs> not just playing... They are to me. I'm I'm just an idiot. But um you know, they they're, they're my dark souls from my childhood, you know, that kind of thing. And the music hits and I'm playing, I don't have a clue. <laughs> you know, but I I'd sat there, I was looking through, I was trying to find the three dizzy games that we had. I knew we had Treasure Island Dizzy, and I knew there was one where there was a Safari hat involved, and I couldn't remember the third one. So I found the Safari Hat one, but I kept going back to Treasure Island Dizzy, and I spent about three hours on it. I didn't get anywhere. <laughs> that shows you how crap I am at them. I didn't but, get anywhere. Yeah, but you had fun, right? And well, that's yeah, the key. yeah. I, I had this massive but it, smile. But on a my lot face. of the fun is the nostalgia, um, mm. and I think um, when there was a magic when you were very small and you were in control of that computer, and the character would go where you wanted it to go, and that was mm, a magic. Yeah. And and for us, we had the same magic feeling a couple of years previous but then we had another magic feeling which was actually making it ourselves being able to make those games for other people to enjoy um and that now that you are much older and you're looking back on it it's it's that nostalgia that's catching you and you're going oh man i this your your brain is kind of programmed to like oh i grew up on this stuff and you you Mm. love it as a result i was going to say that um not only can you play the games online but you can get these things which are so cool Uh, it was so cool so last year they approached us to sort of say that they would like to do like an oliver twins collection cartridge on the evercade and um had to work out a little deal with Codemasters 
Um, and the deal ended up being no money changes hands, all money to charity. So anybody that buys this, all the money goes to charity. Um, but it's so cool because now you can play a little handheld game with 11 NES Dizzy games. Well, our games, they're not all Dizzy games, to be fair. They're all of our NES games that we wrote. Um, and it's even got an HDI, HDMI port, so you can just chuck it on a big TV as well. And, and yep. the other thing is that we did write... Um, in, we, we wrote on lots of different consoles, but the NES was a was a masterful machine. Everybody knows it for Mario, Super Mario Brothers. Um, and even now, today, Super Mario Brothers, that original NES look and the feel is absolutely spot on. That piece of hardware they made was so clever, given the limited um, technology, the RAM, the speed and everything else, um, it's so slick, and that's what we discovered when we when we got hold of a, a, a machine and we started programming on it. And we got ours in about um, I think it's November December '89, and then we spent about four years just programming that, and we loved it. So it was an eight-bit um, console programmed in six five zero two, same as BBC. So we'd already learned that that was easy. But you had um, these hardware sprites, hardware background characters. You could scroll the screen as much as you wanted. Um, and you could do these really slick games. And, yeah, we just punted out a load of really, really nice games. Um, so if you haven't played them and you haven't played them on the Evercade, or you can actually play them on the website, the NES games, on under emulation. You can download them, stick them in an emulator as well. But you can actually play them on a little handheld on the Evercade, and they're really nice. It was a, a hell of a thing for me to sort of realise that I had games that I thought I grew up on. And then I, I remember Dizzy. I remember it was this little egg thing with boxing gloves and red red boots and what have you. But then to go back and play on it, that that nostalgia pop for the music. There we go. That that <laughs> nostalgia pop for the music and the, the movement and everything. And for me, the one life frustration, but that just added to it. That is so weird. A lot of people actually, I mean, we didn't mean to put one life in it. The game was to program with three lives in it. And there was a bug at the mm. last minute and it was a logic bug. And we couldn't solve it. And we wanted to ship the game for Christmas. So we just kind of took the extra lives out and that solved that and ship it, um, which was a big mistake. <laughs> and it was a bit of a cop out. And actually, if we just thought about it for two or three days, we could have probably solved it, but we didn't. We just, but the number of people who actually go, the fact that it was one life, it just kept you on the edge of your seat the whole mm. time. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't our intention to do that, but actually it did seem to work quite well. People quite liked yeah, it. Accident. <laughs> See, my sort of thought process when I was little was, oh, I figured that out. Right, well, I've, you know, that's my life of let's start again. I'll remember that. Then I looked up and I had some sort of sweets of chocolate bar. I had some of that. And then by the time I went back to the game, I completely forgot what I just learned. <laughs> Made the same mistake. Went <laughs> straight back not? to the beginning. Did you, Ooh, did you not have completely uh, did forgot. You not, like, have a... a like work out your own little map and everything because a number of people in sort of who used to play games back in those days they'd have like a sheet of paper or an ex old exercise book draw or something and draw out the map um i i was about five or six so i had that young age confidence <laughs> of i'll remember this gone so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the only the only thing that i that sort of jumped to my there's two things that jumped to my mind when i was playing it earlier on because it was earlier today was that egg can jump 
And spin, <laughs> and which jump, and the spin, spin doesn't jump, always yeah. work. The spin, no. the spin can let you down sometimes. It's like yeah. stop but, rolling, stop rolling. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but but it was that egg can jump, and the other one was give me the snorkel. Where's the snorkel? I can't find the snorkel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but don't put the snorkel down. No, therein <laughs> lies your problem. If you're underwater, you put that snorkel down, bang, you get you're gone. And that's where we took the lives out because we couldn't work out how to easily and neatly resolve this. And it. The other interesting thing is, and, and when just towards the end of Wonderful Dizzy, it kind of reminded me that we were just trying to um, fix up some of the last few issues in Wonderful Dizzy and talking to the programmer through um, Facebook Messenger. And he's like, well, you just solved that problem by doing this. And he goes, I've got 10 bytes left, 10 bytes of memory. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. So the problem... <laughs> The problem isn't just working out logically how to sort of present it to the player. The problem is squeezing it in the the, the bit of memory that you've got left, which is insignificant. Yeah. And so it's like, oh, yeah. yeah, that reminds me. And it reminds me of how we were always trying to solve all the problems when we were making the games. It's like, you. it's not just a case of if you can think it, you can do it. It's a case of, I've got to come up with a solution that not only works nicely and presents well to the player, that the pro- that the computer has enough processing speed to deal with it, and mm. the code doesn't take too much memory, because if it does, it's going to take it away from somewhere else, and then I've got to find the memory from somewhere else. Uh, and in fact, I believe that the logic problem with the snorkel, um, it wasn't just a case of, oh, well, if he's on that side, you could put the snorkel back there, and if he's on that side, you could put the snorkel there. It was a case of, we're also out memory and we've also <laughs> got to ship this game uh, because if we don't get this this master to codemasters in the next two or three days we've missed christmas and say like, ah god well we could always just knock the lives out yeah that would do it <laughs> so, <laughs> ship it <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah there's there's an argument for uh good enough is good enough. yeah absolutely and um somebody uh once said um i don't know who but um a great uh art is never finished it's abandoned and mm. and it's so true that i mean we look at all of our games and yeah if you had more time you could have made more improvements um but You've also got to decide when 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 are you getting diminishing returns? It's like, and there is a point where it's like, it is better to just abandon this one now, ship it. It's good enough. People are only paying one ninety nine, two ninety nine. It'll be fine, mm. um, and then we'll make sure the next one's better or or very different. Um, and I think the fact that we were able to sort of go back and iterate so quickly meant the other games did get much better, much quicker. Um, if you look at Fantasy World Dizzy, the third one, uh, the one that I was going to say we're sort of most proud of, although different games, different features. But there's we basically looked at the uh, like number one and number two, uh, the original Dizzy and Treasure Island, and just tried to make sure that every feature was a better feature, but, but from the ground up, so that, including the design. And, of course, if you started by trying to get all of those improvements by having a game already and saying, I've got to make it, this one's got to be better. You can't. You need to start again from scratch to sort of overhaul the over design. Even if underneath a lot of the code is the same, it's the it's the design um, that you need to sort of overhaul and start, start from scratch. Absolutely. I can definitely say three things when it comes to Dizzy now. Three things that I realised today. One, because I've had this before in the past, if I ever hear cheesy pop song on the radio that gets in my head 
I'm just going to load up Treasure Island Dizzy because that music I can listen to all day. Quite, It's going through my head now. I love it. Right? <laughs> Secondly, at the very least, I've got a website that's the key to the, the, the years of my childhood I forgot I had. So I've got that. And thirdly, I reckon there should be a series of DLC for games that Dizzy could be injected to. Fighting games, <laughs> racing games, kart games. <laughs> you you no, can have I a skin that, in Fortnite. Why not? I, I think uh, I think that's stretching it too far. I also think, and, and <laughs> when we when we were developing Wonderful Dizzy, we came to the conclusion this is probably the last one. Um, mm-hmm. We we found all that's to be found in the loft um, uh, of all the finished ones. The making a new one was quite a big undertaking um, and t- took a lot longer than expected. And and it was great. And it's kind of great to go out on a high. But then obviously in the last recent months, we've got uh, Electronic Arts um, by Codemasters. So any chance, I think, of doing any kind of deal has gone now. Um, I, don't th- I don't think um, the new ownership um, would would be open to any kind of negotiation. I might I might be wrong and I'd love to get that phone call or email which sort of says, Hey of course we are It's like but I don't I don't honestly think that's going to happen. Ah, it's a bit of a shame, but it's not going to stop me trying to create dizzying games now. Well, it's not going to stop us making games and it's not going to stop us creating something better, which is what we're going to do and what we are working on right now. And for your listeners, anybody who's creative out there, um, they can sign up to find out and become alpha testers um, at panavox.com, P-A-N-I-V-O-X.com. We've got a little creative form we fill in, and we'd love to hear from people who have been inspired by what we've done. But we are looking for creatives to uh, help us alpha and beta test something very new. Ooh. Ooh, exciting. Exciting. It is exciting. exciting. I just can't tell you exactly what it is yet. Um, <laughs> That's totally fine. But um, it'll be out later this year, and the alpha testing and stuff should start in about a month or two months' time. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Well, watch this space, everyone. Or rather, watch that space, not this one. <laughs> We've got to listen <laughs> to this one, obviously. Exactly. Listen to this. Then go over to, uh, to Panavox. Panavox and watch that space. Yeah. Watch that space, not this one. <laughs> so, um, so I was wondering, uh, Philip, just as we sort of uh, wrap this up, because I realize you're a, a very busy person and we've been. You, I've got to get back to Panavox work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> At the moment, I'm looking for two Unity coders, um, contract Unity mm-hmm. coders, remote coders. So, uh, if any of your listeners out there know any uh, Unity coders that uh, are looking for a new challenge, then um, yeah, go over to Panavox. Excellent. Yep. Well, I'll I'll send to people over. I know I know a number of people who are Unity folks, so I don't know whether they can fit the bill, but I'll send them over. Absolutely, um, please do. Uh, so as we as we come up to the the, the wrap up, then. I feel like this is a really tough question, and I didn't put it in the right. document. I just I can handle tough questions. Whether, well, I wonder if you can. Oh. Of all of the titles that you've worked on, when you've played them back, are there like the top three? If so, if if somebody is listening to this and said, three? "I don't think I've ever played a game that Philip or Andrew have ever been involved in," what should they check out? So. Just recently, I had another email that I probably shouldn't say this because it hasn't been announced. Uh, so, so I didn't forget that bit. Um, one of the games uh, that I absolutely <laughs> love, uh, um, Fusion Frenzy, 
uh, Fusion Frenzy, uh, the yes. very, very first Xbox game. We we really enjoyed making a really social party game, um, something you could just pick up and play immediately with, with other folk. Uh, if they were there and if they weren't there, then you had AI players, and that worked really nicely. Um, dead proud of that one. Um, really liked um, Zapper, even though Zapper didn't sell very well. Zapper was our Frogger-inspired, because we did Frogger 2, and... We weren't allowed to do Frogger 3 um, and go and check out what an abomination that was. Uh, <laughs> so, but instead, uh, we did Zapper, and I love Zapper. Zapper was so cool. Um, and that's that was kind of the Blitz Games uh, type uh, things. Um, we did lots of other very cool games at Blitz, things like uh, Puss in Boots, um, Epic Mickey 2. Oh, that was incredible. Um, I'm working on um, Epic Mickey. Uh, I just... If you've seen uh, Fantasia, the movie where um, the the brooms come to life and he's mopping the water up, we do that scene as a game, and it works incredibly well. I mean, it's just so good and so artistic. Um, as was Puss in Boots. Puss in Boots looked so good. We had to when we did the press release um, videos um, and screenshots. Every single one has to say from the video game, and the reason that DreamWorks insisted on that, they said you can't tell the difference from the film to the game. Um, <laughs> it looked so good, and it played pretty well as well. Um, so that, that's the Blitz era. Um, beyond the Blitz era, there was Sky Saga, which sadly bit the dust, but that was really, really cool as well, Sky Saga. Um, and of our very, very early games, um, the NES was a pretty slick piece of hardware, so everything ran really, really smoothly. So if you look at um, Fantastic Dizzy, it was like a mashup of all the previous Dizzies put together in one big adventure. But it just runs really slick and really smooth. Um, I think it was a little bit too big. That was it. That's the only fault of that game. And then we made some more Dizzy games on the NES, uh, Mystery World and uh, Wonder, uh, Wonderland Dizzy, which were smaller and tighter and neater and, and worked a little bit better. Um, there's so many games. Um, I mean, a lot of people remember Ghostbusters 2. Could have run a little bit quicker, but it was a nice game. Um, Pro Ski Simulator coming down a 3D hill on a Spectrum was pretty incredible. Again, that one could have run a little bit faster. Spectrum was not good at doing scrolling. Neither was the abstract. <laughs> um, Grand Prix Simulator 2 was pretty nice. Um and of course, all the original Dizzy games. Um, of the Dizzy games, the original ones, Fantasy World Dizzy, number three. Uh, that was, I think, the pinnacle of our 8-bit computer um, dizzies. Um, and that's the one where it was me and Andrew doing 95% of that. Uh, we had a little bit of help on the graphics and on the on the audio, but it was pretty much me and Andrew hunkering down and just getting on with it. And five weeks worth of work, ship it. We always <laughs> tried to set ourselves this one month, but... We didn't always hit it. <laughs> we tried. We didn't always hit it. Excellent. Okay. So um, what about what about keeping up with the work that uh, maybe you and your brother are doing? I mean, we've had the – we talked about the new the new uh, company project that you're setting up, the new studio. Uh, but what about if folks are wanting to just find out what you're up to or what your brother's up to? Um, so – uh, well, we put news on the Oliver Twins uh, website, olivertwins.com, so that's pretty easy. And we've got a Twitter, Oliver Twins. Uh, we've got a Facebook, Oliver Twins. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I'm sensing a means, pattern. Yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly. By all means, follow all of that. Um, for the last couple of years, we've been doing kind of um, 
consultancy on the kind of business and um, of running um, games companies. And so that's Games Dragons. Um, and we've got lots of articles there for people who want to gain into the games industry or they're running an indie studio, want to run an indie studio. Um, but we are having to wind that down. There are just aren't enough hours in the day. Um, mm. All the old retro stuff, and the Oliver Twin stuff is kind of a hobby, but it's quite a big hobby. Um, the Game Dragons, we're having to wind down so that we've got enough time to dedicate to the new business, um, Panavox, and its Excellent. product, which I know the name of, but I can't say. Of course. <laughs> totally. No, I totally understand that. Tease. Um, I, do, I do know, just real quick, I do know that there is the the officially sanctioned, I don't know whether it's the correct term, the Oliver Twins book. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, so folks oh, should definitely check it out. Too. Oh, you can't I've see it, mine. but it's here. It's the old book. Yeah. So yes. um, this took a while to write. Um, we were supposed to have um, Chris Wilkins and Roger Keane were supposed to write it. The problem is they need all the info. So what we actually did was we set up some Google Docs and said, we'll sort of put all the info into this. And then what actually happened was, um, and it did take about, about six months, is that to give them the info, you sort of need to write it. And then to give them the images, you sort of need to find them and put them in into the Dropbox. And so we ended up just scanning and trawling and writing. Uh, I mean, it's an enormous amount of work. In fact, the materials we gave were two or three times longer. And their exercise was to actually decide which pictures to keep, which text to keep, and to tidy it all up. Because um, at the end of the day, um, they are writers and they, they lay out magazines. I mean, um, Roger is from the old Crash days, Crash and Zap. Um, and so the book is laid out much like a magazine with lots of um, images and cutouts and box outs and all this kind of stuff. And it looks absolutely incredible. And we're so we're so proud of what they managed to create. I mean, our, what we gave them was an enormous number of images and a load of raw text. Um, and they tidied it all up and made an awesome book. And I mean, there's a, actually, you can get the book on the Oliver Twins website. It's just there as one of the pages and you can open it up and read it for free. I mean, it is there as a PDF, um, but obviously the real, the real deal is better. And there's a link there to buy the real deal. Mm. Mm. Yep. So what you're saying is, cause you gave them so much information. There could be an Oliver Twins book too. Oh no, no. I mean, <laughs> they, they, edited down, they edited, they edited it down and kept the best bits. Um, right. Yeah. There was a, there was a lot of stuff. <laughs> that I, didn't. I mean, what I would say is that that covers um, from us kind of finding computers, which in about was uh, finding games, arcade games, like um, space invaders and stuff in about 79, 80 and our brother getting um, our friend getting a ZX 80 and then our brother getting a ZX 81. It covers from that period all the way through to about 94. Um, and at that point, we we started employing people and running Blitz games. Um, that period is not covered at all because the book stops at about ninety four, um, so yeah. it doesn't touch on PlayStation One or or that whole gamut. It does it does get into sort of um, Mega Drive and Genesis and and stuff like that, but doesn't touch on the PlayStation One era going forwards. Which is ironic because I meet people in the industry. Oh, I've been in the industry forever. I started when it all started. I was there on PlayStation One, and I'm like. <laughs> it's like, I've got a book, <laughs> 400 pages, which don't even get to PlayStation 1. <laughs> so, oh, that's Excellent. you, PS1. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, but every, every now and then I meet people who who predate me, which is quite fun. Archie McLean, I know Archer well, and um, all his stuff predates us. And it's like, 
how did you do that? I mean, he was writing games in um, 78. Um, he wrote sort of a Defender, which obviously never went out as Defender because it went out as Drop Zone. Um, when he was let down, shall we say, by Atari. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he did some awesome work um, before we properly got into publishing games at all. Um, it's an amazing field. I, I, I feel really self-indulgent because I like to look back on the past because that's how, that's how I am. But there you go. Uh, but yeah, um, thank you ever so much. Well, for I, I hope I hope your uh, listeners enjoyed this. Um, you guys did. So, so hopefully. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> and yeah. we're going to listen to it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. When editing it, you're going to listen to it several times probably. So, so let's hope yeah. you enjoy it. <laughs> but I hope your so listeners sure enjoy it. Cool. I'm sure that they will. Thank you ever so much, Philip. No problem. Um, that, I just want to do the wrap up real quick. And that is, uh, thank you ever so much, uh, everyone, for listening in to another episode of the Waffling Tailors. Be sure to check out the website, wafflingtailors.rocks. There will be this episode linked on there. And we'll put links to all of the things that uh, the, the, uh, Philip has been talking about, the Oliver Twins website, uh, the Yoke Folk, which we didn't talk about, but they are amazing. They've documented everything to do with Dizzy. Um, and, and they host all the fan games as well. Crazy yeah, number of fan games. Exactly. We'll we'll link to uh, Evercade so that then if you buy the games, you can you know the, you the, can the donate the to charity package. That's it. Donate to charity and get a, a set of games. We'll 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 link to your new projects and we'll link through to all of those things as well. So definitely check out all of those links. They'll be in the show notes somewhere. So uh, all that really remains to say is thank you all for listening. Thank you very much. Bye everybody. Bye. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye. Intro music is Among the Stars by Muse Station Productions. Outro music is I Need You Watashi no Sabate by GH. Spoiler break music is Spectrum Subdiffusion Mix by Phonics. Palette cleanser music is Breathe Deep, Breathe Clear by Siobhan Dagay. See the show notes for more details. The Waffling Tailors podcast is a proud member of the J&J Media Network. To find out more about J&J Media, head over to jayandjay.media or check the show notes for a link.